Okay, we're going to make a start. I'm going to attempt at introducing our speakers. I think most of you will be aware that recent sanctions, i.e. the latest series of sanctions imposed by the Trump administration, has crippled Iran's economy. Inflation is very high, unemployment is rising. Most people see the situation as quite devastating. And, of course, Iranians also consider the fact that their own government is both corrupt and incompetent. But on the other hand, there is no doubt that anyone who imposes sanctions hopes that by increasing incompetence and uh, corruption, they will increase dissent. And dissent will hope, as as far as they are concerned, will create regime change. We are very lucky to have two speakers, both of whom will give us an insight into aspects of Iranian sanctions speaker we have is uh, Zach Kalp. The first time Zach phoned me and I spoke to him extensively, I was convinced that he was an Iranian masquerading as someone coming from Belgium. In fact, I, w- I must admit, I don't think I said much to him because I was very suspicious of what he was asking. But he's a doctoral student. He started his PhD here. I think many of us are very sorry he decided to go to UCLA, but the weather is better, apparently, he tells me. He doesn't speak Farsi very well because of his studies here. He spent quite a few years in Iran. He's written for the Shah newspaper, which is quite unusual. I didn't know non-Iranians could write for Shah. But his articles outside the academic arena have appeared in Al Monitor, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, just to name some of them. His research is on political and comparative historical sociology, and his current study is on development and stratification with a focus on the Middle East and West Asia. I ask you to welcome both speakers. Thank you all for being here. Thank you also to the Middle East Center and to Yasemin for kindly organizing this event and inviting me here. Thank you also to my former supervisors, Edmund Herzig and Omar Katuzian, for being here. I'm sure that you guys have heard me talk way enough. Today, Yasemin invited me and asked me to talk about the relationship between, sort of talk about the economy and sanctions. And so sanctions is definitely not my field of expertise. And sort of, I was thinking about how to relate this to the topic of my PhD dissertation, which is more on state-society relations and specific sort of labor and class politics after the uh, Iranian Revolution. And so what really struck me is that to a large degree, the way in which the U.S. has legitimized the imposition of sanctions is actually by referring to protests in the country as a way of backing up sort of the connection that the U.S. government has with the Iranian people. And I think this becomes clear um, just looking at something that we academics hate, but we're also way too active on it, which is Twitter. Here is a tweet. I follow Secretary Pompeo on Twitter. Uh, So he asked, he put on this very nice graph, which is also a very bad graph. It's the the x-axis is unclear whether it's months or weeks. The the y-axis, we don't know if it's frequencies or percentages. So this is just in all regards an extremely bad graph. But nevertheless, he makes a clear point that 
you know, there's sort of, we can see some kind of linear trend in the increase in protest intensity, supposedly, between, say, January 2017 and January 2018 in Iran. He was making, he, um, I think he tweeted this in, oh, in June 2018, so this is just after uh, the reimposition of sanctions, actually. And he got a lot of retweets. I was one of the people who angrily reacted against this tweet with my own graph, hoping to also achieve, you know, a wide audience. But alas, I only got about five or six retweets. Um, so I think a lot of academics like me were, were sort of, you know, we're all trying to interact with these major politicians that have followers on Twitter to no avail. So I opened this talk to at least try to tease out some of the relationships between um, the potential relationships or maybe the indirect relationships between external sanctions on the one hand and uh, popular protests and social bargaining in Iran. When I saw this tweet, first thing I wanted to do was sort of reject Pompeo's argument. I wanted to make the argument that no, the, the imposition of sanctions actually leads to a suppression of, of popular and social movements within Iran. And it might lead to more uh, sort of repression, and it's not good at all for democratization. But I wanted to put this out in some kind of news channel. But as the year unfolded, I was, I was kind of proven wrong. So what we see over the year, I, this is a graph that... I got the data from one of these political science uh, centers that sort of sc scrape data automatically from various websites, uh, news websites. And so it gives us a rough impression of how protest intensity develops over time. I think it's, um, obviously this has a lot of problems methodologically, but I think it nevertheless gives us like an easy sort of interpretation of how protests have developed. And what you see is, I plotted it here from December until um, I think January 2019, what you clearly see is that even despite the reimposition of, sa of sanctions in early 2018, we definitely do not see a decline in the number of protests in Iran this period. And so I was probably proven wrong, even though I hate to accept that. And so we've actually seen a surprising number, and for those of you who have been following the news about Iran, a really almost a lot of unprecedented pro protest movements and demonstrations that are really fascinating in the degree to which they've diffused the sort of forms of coordination that have taken place and the extent of them. So just to start with, I think here this, this, this big bin is obviously the, what became known as the Dema protest wave in which dozens of towns and cities across Iran in um, very much unprecedented week-long protests and rioting across the country in late December 2017, early uh, January 2018. That actually caught a lot of politicians within Iran, but also um, outside observers extremely by surprise. We're still thinking, I think a lot of people are still thinking about what this actually meant, what impact it had or will have on Iranian politics, and the way in which this protest wave is really taking shape. But this was not the only one. After, after Dema, we see a variety of other protests also emerging. So, for example, if we just look at the number of frequencies, this is another peak. This peak here in, I think this is sort of May 2018, combined teachers' protests, nationwide <coughs> teachers' protests, as well as truckers, which for me was a very fascinating form of protest, which again, a trucker strike across Iran, led to a lot of queues for gas uh, stations, put down a lot of businesses who were reliant on oil provision across the country again. And so people have really been thinking about how did this protest materialize? 
how did it diffuse so quickly in a setting that clearly uh, was very difficult to organize in. Most of these structures are employed by private, employer, private employers, not by the state, by various employers too. They have very tough labor market competition and um, uh, conditions, but so, and they also had no leadership. But clearly this protest was quite successful and they managed to get a variety of concessions from the state. And here too, a last sort of peak that we see is in late October 2018. Again, we have uh, teachers' demonstrations. Teachers' demonstrations across Iran are actually quite common, as you, you might notice. But this one was special in the sense that it led to an actual strike. So the teachers refused to actually teach students, secondary primary schools, and sat in schools across, across the country. So, I mean, this graph, obviously, because it only shows frequencies, actually conceals a lot of the other protests that people have been paying attention to, such as protests in Khuzestan, in Haftarpeh. We, we have protests, a uh, long-running strike that people paid a lot of attention to as well. So, in terms of just contentious politics and social movements, I think 2018 was really a very interesting year in many respects in Iran. And so the question is, how have... have sanctions affected the way, way in which people protest in Iran? And if so, how? And how has this developed over time? And so what I'm going to, try, going to try to do today is give you, first of all, maybe some workable scholarly theories about the potential effect, and then present you some of the um, data that I've gathered, uh, mainly quantitative data, so apologies to some of you. But I also, have, um, I also did a lot of field research and interviews in Iran that I hope we can talk about more in the, in the Q&A. And so most of the material that we're presenting is essentially just descriptive statistics using uh, the sort of event catalog of protests that I've compiled ranging from around 2011 till 2018. So I hope this, that this, um, these data can give us some insights. All right, to move on to um, potential theories of the way in which external sanctions might actually affect democratization in Iran. And sort of the way in which, you know, Mike Pompeo and his team might have been thinking about how the imposition of sanctions might be to the benefit of the United States. I think very little has actually been written about the direct effect of external sanctions on democratization, partly because the sample size is so small and we have actually very few countries uh, outside of Iran because Iran has really been hit extremely hard by sanctions and is one of the few countries, maybe with Cuba, maybe Venezuela now. So there are very, essentially a very small number of countries that have been hit so hard by sanctions as Iran has over the past couple of years. So there's been little theorizing exactly about how external sanctions would affect democratization. But taking from the literature on authoritarianism, I think there's, there are generally sort of two ways of thinking about uh, democratic transitions. One is a more top-down vision one is a more bottom-up vision. In this talk, I'm going to focus on the, on the sort of more bottom-up uh, approach because it highlights popular mobilization and protests. And I think also the, the top-down version doesn't really hold for the Iranian case, as political scientists in the room would agree with me. So what is the what would the, the top-down... I've actually put the top-down approach at the bottom just to make you a little bit confused. The top-down approach to how external sanctions would affect democratization would be that, first of all, external sanctions, as, as happened in Iran, target sort of more hardline elites, would target the revolutionary guards, specific entities and organizations attached to them, military organizations, and sort of this puts pressure on these hardline elites, making them more willing to negotiate with reformist elites. 
And so this, this negotiated pact would lead to sort of suboptimal solution for all of those elites, political elites involved, eventually uh, affecting democratic transition. This would be a sort of very classical, top-down way of thinking about how external sanctions might affect democratization. But I think so far we haven't really seen that in the Iranian case. So what would a more bottom-up approach look like? Well, I think in this case, um, we would really be looking at the way in which external sanctions provoke a form of economic shock or hardship on the population. And so this would, the hypothesis goes, this would lead to, through various mechanisms such as relative deprivation, form of absolute deprivation, really sort of lowering living standards, this would lead to popular mobilization. In turn, popular mobilization might lead to democratization. So really we have these sort of two forms of how people might think that imposing sanctions will increase the likelihood that Iran will experience democratization, or at least will experience a shift in its politics more in line with U.S. interests. We'll be focusing on the more bottom-up approach which highlights protests. I produced this map from, from this database that I compiled, and this map is extremely relative in the sense that, uh, first of all, so it looks at protest intensities by the different counties over time in Iran. And it's relative because, first of all, it's, it's normalized, so all of the counties sort of are related to this one quintile distribution. But it's also standardized by population. So really what we see is a, a highly relative map of how protest has developed over time. And what we see is, I think, two things. One is that particular counties, clearly over time, are more prone to protest or seem to have more systematic propensity to protest. I think in the, maybe in the Q&A we can go into why some of these counties, some of these locations, are, seem to be more systemically prone to protest than others. Second thing, which I'll be focusing on, is the increase in protest intensity quite clearly in, from 2015 onwards. I think this is quite clear from the graph. So why was 2015 such a turnaround year? And I think I, I'll, I'll try to sort of start off or like situate the talk or the, the point I'm trying to make around this puzzle. Why was 2015 such a, such a changing year? Why did we see such an increase in protests across Iran? Because they're really widespread across Iran in this year. According to a bottom-up approach to democratization, really what we'd be expecting is that by this point, Sanctions, which came into play in around 2010, 2011, started to hit hard on the Iranian economy. And so what we would be expecting is that living standards by this point in around 2015 are really affected badly by sanctions. And so I, I gather some data from Central Bank of Iran, the Labor Ministry, looking at real wages, because this is what matters, the real wages rather than nominal, nominal wages, over a longer period of time. For, on the one hand, average wages in the industrial sector, secondary sector, as well as in mining, also averages. Then there is real wages for a very common occupation, unskilled construction workers, as well as the minimum wage. And I think these, all of these graphs, first of all, they're parallel, which is a good thing. That gives us some confidence that, they, that at least they're moving in the same direction. But more importantly, I think what's clear from this graph is that real wages in Iran are increasing from the mid-1990s onward until around 2010. If essentially, until the sanctions start, real wages in Iran are increasing. Um, so if you just draw a line 2010-2011, sanctions are imposed by uh, not only the EU, but also the US, and also the UN. 
that I think the economist Hasha Bissaran, I don't know if some of you are acquainted with his work, is really driven on this point that sanctions from this point on, onwards are just qualitatively and categorically different from anything that Iran experienced in the, in the period prior to 2010. Even though it's true that Iran's experienced a variety of different trade and financial restrictions after um, the hostage crisis, these sanctions sort of imposed after 2010 were really a game changer. And so I think you see that in here, the way in which real wages are affected. However, you remember the, the maps I showed you. In 2015, real wages are back where they were in 2010. So if we're just thinking in terms of how living standards are affected and what the relationship between living standards and protest is, this is not an answer. Living standards, or at least real wages, are back at their 2010 levels in 2015 when we see these protests really increasing. And I think the answer to that is that real wages were primarily affected by inflation. And when Rouhani came to power in 2013, he really did his best to turn around inflation. And, and so we, we should be thinking more about how inflation is really uh, affecting real wages more than anything else. But so in any case, I think we can reject this argument that it is about a sort of absolute deprivation of a real fall in living standards that has been driving these uh, sort of protests from 2015 onwards. So another, um, I think, very interesting source of data that I would recommend all uh, Middle East scholars at least to look at if that is available in respective country of study is to look at court data because it's, I find it very interesting. I think to a degree it's a sort of, on a sort of latent form of, of expressing grievances, a less contentious form of expressing grievances that really shows how states uh, are interacting with societies and how people are taking action and making claims on the state. So I did this for the Iranian case. This data has some issues with it, actually, that we can talk about. But I cleaned it, and um, I think it's nevertheless interesting to look at it over time. And it gives us some insight as to how the number of cases and the number of rulings have changed over time. And so this is, just FYI, this is um, data about court, uh, labor courts, which are, by the way, the most common way for people to make complaints and start a court case. This is through labor courts. What you see on this graph is that I think the number of court cases has remained roughly constant, except for a dip in 2013. They've been remained roughly constant around 300,000, so this is in thousands, so around 300,000, which is quite a lot. And a lot of people in Iran have experience going through the system of, of labor courts. And that does not only include working class people, it also includes a lot of uh, more middle class people. And so these complaints could range from unemployment benefits, social insurance, to uh, delayed wages and work conditions, etc. So we're really focusing on in, in on the workplace here, but this is the best data that we have available, I think. So what do we see? We see no increase in the number of cases. It remains pretty it remains pretty constant, even despite the sanctions. From 2009 all the way to 2017, the amount of cases and rulings remains roughly constant. So here again, I think we could question the theory that people are have more grievances in total. A counter-argument could be that these court cases are already operating at maximum capacity and people are just, it just takes way too long for these courts to actually process the cases. If we look at 
the efficiency of the courts, and I want to really highlight through some of the interviews that I've done, I want to really emphasize that these courts are pretty efficient, and I think they're becoming more efficient over the past couple of years. This is just the difference between number of cases and rulings, which is a rough proxy, but it is becoming, it's actually becoming less. Also, if you look at some of these local offices have data on the number of days it takes, for instance, to process a claim, most of it is pretty short. In a country like China, it often takes more than 12 months for a worker to have his or her claim processed. In the Iranian case, it's often only about three weeks. So not only that, but most of these cases also end in the, to the benefit of the employee. Because Iran is a very generous and actually worker-friendly labor law that often promotes or ends up in the, to the benefit of, of the worker. So again, I would like to drive down the point that if we take sort of cases and rulings and sort of legal claims that people make as an underlying proxy for grievances that people have, here again we, we almost see no effect of sanctions on grievances. So if there is... And if there's no change in the amount of grievances over time, why are people protesting more? Why, if, there, if, if grievances remain roughly constant over time, why do we see people protesting more from 2015 onwards? That's really sort of the, the question I would like to ask. And I'm not going to give any, by the way, I'm not going to give a clear answer to that. I would like to make my point, first of all, by reproducing my Pompeo's graph from my own data which is a very bad graph. As you can see, one, once again, like Mike Pompeo, you kind of could see a, a linear trend here, but it's very unclear what's actually happening. So if we transform the same protest frequencies in moving averages, I think it becomes much more interesting. And so that's what I did here. And so moving averages really tracks the sort of average number of protests over a, specific, over a long period of time and tracking sort of the average protest per day. Okay, so what do we see on this graph? Um, we see that there are around two protests a day in Iran. This is on the basis of a database, so it's not an objective figure. Over time, 2013, 2014, all of a sudden spiking up to almost six protests a day, so almost a threefold increase in the daily protests in 2015, so as, as I showed you in the map. Then going down again, staying a little bit higher, and then going up again with the high fluctuation. So who in the room could guess what the blue line stands for. What happened on the blue line? This is actually, I located this at a very particular date. This is true. It's a nuclear deal, but specifically April 2nd when Zarif came out, Lausanne, I think he was doing the negotiations in, right? He came out and sort of announced the nuclear deal. So, I mean, clearly to an extent, the fact that these are following exactly the same, the peak is exactly the same as the blue line, is a little bit produced by the 60-day moving average. So if, I, if we take a 90-day moving average, the graph shifts a little bit to the right. If we take a 30-day moving average, it might shift a little bit to the left. But all in all, it's, I think, highly surprising that we see this extreme overlap between the nuclear deal, on the one hand, and the, this, all of a sudden the spike in protest in Iran in 2015. And so I think really we should be thinking about the nuclear deal as well as sanctions in having effect on, on protests in Iran. And so I'm going to end with uh, just my impressions of the way in which sort of sanctions and deals have an indirect effect on social bargaining and the ways in which citizens make claims in Iran. So 
I think the first takeaway has to do with, san with the sanctions itself, namely that the 2015 nuclear deal really empowered reformists. Um, for, a lot of, for a lot of you who were analyzing Iran prior to 2015, actually, I don't know if you remember, but Rouhani was not seen as, as a real reformist candidate when he was elected in 2013. And he was sort of seen as a compromise option. And I think what you see in 2015 is really that reformists start properly becoming empowered again in the, um, in the Iranian political sphere. My story would be one in which we emphasize the degree to which sort of national politics mediates between the, the effect of, of, of sanctions with protests in Iran. And so I think that the nuclear deal really increased competition between political elites in Iran and by strengthening the reformists sort of opened up elite cleavages between elites and this you know, generate a lot of possibility for, for ordinary citizens to start making claims on the state. Then again, the 2018 U.S. sanctions and the reposition of sanctions by the United States I think has weakened reformists. However, so far we've not really seen the decline in protest intensity at all. I think this is partly to do with the fact that the Rouhani government, which is still in power and has been re-elected, has been very unwilling to use repression against against protesters and repression has, been, has remained very minimal. Power struggles have sort of continued at higher levels, so we haven't really seen it coming down from 2015 onwards. So I think 2015 should really be seen as a period that is still ongoing and developing. I think a second takeaway is really thinking about what happened in 2015 and what sort of organizations were the first, and I think this is really key, what were the groups, the social groups, that started to protest in 2015? That is really a key question. Because those groups were the first to sort of signal to a lot of other groups that protesting is a possibility. They saw the nuclear deal as really empowering reformists, so they interpreted it well. And some of my research on labor unions in Iran really shows the sort of counterintuitive as a counterintuitive finding that it's those organizations that are closest to the state that are able to perceive these opportunities for protest. And specifically, sort of state-controlled, state-monitored, state-sanctioned unions or corporatist unions, as, as we would like to call them in the literature, have played a really key role. And a lot of, um, I would like to just end with, quickly end with like some brief insights that I have in these unions, and maybe we can talk about them more in the Q&A, is that most of these organizations, and they were at the forefront of starting protests in 2015, primarily teachers' unions, but also nurses' unions, I think as well as sm smaller workers' unions, are extremely limited in their organizational means. They're very small organizations, often with a membership base of a couple dozen people, not more than several hundred, because it's impossible for them to have a large membership base. Otherwise, they would uh, probably face repression. But they have um, extreme capacity to mobilize. So they, instead of organizing, they mobilize. I think it's very interesting to look at, and I think a lot of other Middle Eastern countries also have this feature, this interesting overlap between civil society and the state, whereby, paradoxically, those associations and organizations that are closer to the state somehow have privileged access, and, they, and that gives them an, an ability to perceive these opportunities. With that, I would like to talk more about this in the Q&A. Thank you.